Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, March 31st, 2022, your weekly dose of sanity is always the prevailing narrative. Okay, what insanity are we going to be talking about this week? It's all anybody can talk about. The slap heard around the world, Will Smith, Chris Rock, the Oscars. Oh, don't you worry. I'm going to be getting into that in just a minute or two. Um, but also this episode, I'm interviewing a good friend of mine named Max Lugavere. He's one of the top names in wellness and nutrition. He's got a new book coming out called The Genius Kitchen. It's also got a podcast that just recently, I believe as of this week, entered the top 100 of all podcasts and Apple Podcasts called The Genius Life. And aside from being just an incredibly informed source on wellness, nutrition, fitness, and the way to live a healthier and more energetic life, Max also has a really interesting story about how he got to the place that he is. Um, one with, with essentially, you know, he, he was not a nutritionist, a doctor, had no background or training in this. And in response to his mother being diagnosed with a form of Parkinson's and degenerative disorder, he dived headfirst into researching everything everything about nutrition and inputs on the body and their function on brain operation and how it would impact his mother's illness. And out of that came his career and his new status as as a wellness and fitness influencer and a New York Times bestselling book. And like I said, a, a top rated podcast. So Max is a fascinating guy. And it's really interesting to hear his learnings that come out of such as an experience. And also, he uh, he was involved in an interesting experiment in the 2000s regarding news, content, and a, thing, a, a broadcast experiment that really kind of predicted a lot of what we've seen in changes in media and news consumption over the past 10, 15 years with a, a company called Current TV that was financed and backed by Al Gore, which was an experiment in kind of user-generated content early on before the internet and social media had really taken off. And while that venture failed, Max has a lot of interesting stories from it and things that really inform what we've seen, like I said, over the past decade. And aside from that, you know, much as we talk about on the prevailing narrative, it's not just about what happens. It's about how people react, because how people react in the public narratives and conversations in the social media and digital media age are as important than the, unfortunately, for better or for worse, as important, if not more important than the actual facts. So we're going to talk with Max about the discourses, narratives and narrative battles going on in the fitness and wellness world. 
Everything from how for decades the American public and the, the fitness world um, and every and nutrition had been informed by government and public health narratives around the food pyramid and just complete nonsense as to what the government and the the public health officials that were ex, an extension of the government were informing us and instructing us to eat to the battles between veganism and what's the, the body positivity movement and what it's okay or supposedly not okay to say in the health and wellness world. These days. So that's going to be coming up in just a little while, but we'll get to a couple topics first. Okay, so The Slap, Will Smith, Chris Rock, The Oscars, Scientology, Toxic Masculinity, Misogyny, Can You Joke About Women Going Bald, What's the Role of Comedy? God knows what we're all going to talk about that in a second. But this also this incident also informs a conversation about the American film industry at large because obviously, I mean, this, this occurred at the Oscars. The reason that there's so much attention being given to it is because of where it happened. Um, and there's a lot, really interesting story to tell or at least perspective to try and, and distill about the American film industry industry because i mean this was for years america's kind of touchstone its cultural touchstone and its vessel for cultural import i mean who were the big stars in society it was all a matter of who was in movies and it seems like some of the luster has come off of that its star does not shine quite as bright and it's something that was really typified by the dissent in relevancy and viewership of the oscars and it's this incident that seems to have revived interest in it is kind of interesting timing. Um, so Ross Douth, one of my favorite columnists, he wrote a piece before the Oscars, before the slap, titled, We Aren't Just Watching the Decline of the Oscars, We're Watching the End of the Movies. And I find a, I find it hard to dispute that. It feels like the American film industry, as we knew it from, let's call it the mid to late 1960s, or maybe even a little bit longer, it was, you know, it, it occupied what, what was the most important story in pop culture, which it, it was being told by whatever movies were were popular and which stars were popular in those movies, right? And I think that slowly but surely, or maybe quickly over the past decade, at least since the the kind of proliferation of social media and the streaming world, that's no longer the case. So um, how Douthat put it in describing why the, the movies were so significant. This big screen entertainment is the Central American popular art form, the key engine of American celebrity, the main aspirational space of American actors and storytellers, a pop culture church with its own icons and scriptures and rites of adult initiation. I think that's a great description of what the American film industry was during its heyday, which I believe lasted quite you know quite a while. It was at least forty about forty to fifty years, and this is in almost no other aspect of of commerce or culture at all was any one nation this dominant in anything just the worldwide i mean what america pumped out in terms of film and in terms of movie stars just dominated the cultural landscape across the very least the, the western world and for most of the the world in general through most of the late the you know the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century but once again as i think i don't necessarily think that still rings true as doubt that you know went on that piece is i'm going to break down some of the some of the snippets from so how what does that pretend, you know, how did that get expressed with the Oscars, right? The Oscars are the celebration of all this, the celebration of that Central American popular art form, as I just described it. So for through the, the 80s, uh, the 90s, and kind of into the early 2000s, the viewership of the Oscars always hovered around 40 million viewers. I, mean, I think that at its height, it was probably the most watched show was maybe 47, but it was always around 40 million. Um, beginning end of the 2000s, I believe it was two, well, actually 2000. 
11, there's still 41 million people watching the Oscars. That started to be chipped. The audience was, was chipped away and continued to incrementally decrease over the 2010s. A quarter of the audience had already been chopped off by 2019. We were already under 30 million viewers by 2019. 2020, which people forget was before the pandemic, was 23 million. So you have it almost cut in half from its its height, from its all-time high viewership by 2020. And this event, which was once again one of America's annual cultural touchstones. This was losing relevance and losing relevance quickly. Then you've got 2021, which is still during pandemic conditions, and it was just, it might as well have not happened, right? And uh, 10 million viewers, and you could maybe excuse it away Right. You could maybe excuse it away as uh, because of the pandemic conditions. But it seemed like the lack of interest and quality of the product was also impacting things here for better, for worse. Um, So disaster in 2021 this year, the ratings were tracking pretty poorly through the first hour or so of the show. I mean, maybe hovering around 13, 14 million. Then, of course, all of a sudden the slap happens and things just shoot through the roof, which in my listen, uh, we can spend speculate on whether or not this was staged. I believe there's a no shortage of evidence suggesting that it might have been, although, hey, we, we don't have, there's no, there's no way to prove it. Um, and so I'm only going to, you know, speculate more for the purposes of this conversation. It happened, right? Or it was genuine, right? Um, so the Oscars are written as a, as a manifestation of the lack of interest in the film industry, despite strong box office numbers, which to a certain extent are generated, you know, a result of increased prices. They, they sell far less tickets than they did 15, 20, 25 years ago. Um, yeah, like I said, that's an expression of declining interest in the film industry. So what is driving this declining interest? Um, to a certain extent, it's in the movie industry has been a victim of technology and globalization. Um, and also it's just led to, it, it's expressed in the redundancy of our culture. You could even start to see it. Some of my friends that worked in the film industry end of the 2000s and uh, beginning of the 2010s were like, Jesus Christ, how are we doing nothing but sequels and reboots? We don't do anything that's original. We have to take some legacy property, whether it's something that was television, consumer products, or God knows what, and try to make a new movie out of it reinvented for the modern era. I mean, there is, it was spoofed in, uh, there is a great spoof video if you get a chance to check it out on YouTube called Pinkberry the Movie. It's got Miles Fisher, who's hilarious. Um, he was involved in it, and it's kind of spoofing how everything has to be based on on some sort of uh, pre-existing intellectual property. And it's just a spoof, a satire in an agency about trying to put together a movie about Pinkberry. And it's just, it's hilarious, but it's also very telling about the film industry. Um, so Douthat's piece goes into all of the speculation and explanation of, you know, what has gone wrong in the American film industry. Um, and obviously a big piece of it is China and globalization and movies having to try to appeal to the Chinese audience and to foreign audiences that really kind of, that that really sink creativity because you've got to communicate in a way that translates across cultures that, that lacks the nuances that might be awesome to an American audience or if you were creating it just for Chinese audiences might really hit home um, amongst you know that kind of cultural milieu but you know in trying to put this one size fits all uh, uh, plan into place, it creates really bland content. Um, so, you know, it, starting in about the late 2000s at, at movie studios, the big studios, there's a green light committee, you, you know, any movie that gets green lit essentially 
for production has to be okayed by the committee. And at least one member on that committee at every studio by the, the late 2000s um, was focused on China. That if it didn't pass muster for the Chinese market, you couldn't get the movie made. So as Douthat puts it, globalization widened the market for Hollywood productions, but the global audience pushed the business towards a simpler style of storytelling that translated more easily across languages and cultures with less complex, uh, complexity and idiosyncrasy and fewer cultural specifics. So obviously he put it more articulately than me, but as, as you said, it translates better across languages and cultures, but it's simpler and it has fewer cultural specifics. And it's really, you know, it's not I, to me, I, I don't find it nearly as interesting. And the great manifestation of this would, of course, be the Marvel movies, superhero movies and stuff that seems really repetitive and is very, you know, uh, graphics heavy and action heavy, but seems to be telling very similar stories over and over again. Um, Martin Scorsese took a ton of heat. Um, Martin Scorsese being, a, you know, a filmmaker who's much more focused on the more, you know, slice of life, nuanced um, storytelling and character, heavy stories of, you know, America's golden age in film in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And he took some heat with Colin, you know, essentially saying the superhero movies weren't movies a couple years ago. And here's how he explained it. For me, the filmmakers I came to love and respect and for my friends who started making movies around the same time that I did cinema is about revelation, aesthetic, emotional and spiritual revelation. It was about the characters, the complexity of the people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical Natures. It was about confronting the unexpected on the screen and in the life it w- in, and in the life how it was dramatized and interpreted and enlarging the sense of what was possible in the art form. They are sequels and names, but they are remakes in spirit and everything in them is officially sanctioned because it can't really be any other way. That's the nature of modern film franchises. Mar- market researched, audience tested, vetted, modified, re- re-vetted and remodified until they're ready for consumption, right? So the, you know, Big Mac, the the, the super sizification, the McDonald's, is a, a, just the assembly line standardizing, making movies way too much based on data compiled from market research that would translate, in this case, market research across different regions and, and nations as opposed to just the domestic uh, a domestic market. And once again, coming up with un, you know really unexciting, redundant product. And what other impact does this have? The the, the superhero movies, the the story or the, the property or the superheroes are the stars. There aren't stars, the way the doubt that put it, the possibility of a movie star as a transcendent or iconic figure too seems increasingly dated. Superhero franchises can make an actor famous, but often only as a disposable servant to the brand. Yet these actors are all disposable. I mean, think about who the new movie stars are over the past five years, 10 years. I mean, Timothy Chalamet, who, who, like, these are not, these are not exciting people, right? Even the decade before, I mean, you pumped out like The Rock and Vin Diesel and people that could be shoved into a a Fast and the Furious movie or, you know, offshoots of that. But I mean, even this century for American movie stars, things have been, uh, it's been kind of a fallow period because these movies just don't serve. They don't exist to highlight the people in it. And the notion of the movie star was very glamorous. It was something that gave uh, a American culture a little bit more of a shine, and that's now dead. So these are the types of dynamics that have kind of squelched the American film industry recently, and as was typified in the declining Oscar ratings, of course, also there's the case of streaming. A lot of movies are now being made not for theaters, not they're make, being made for streaming services, and the amount of product. Like, there is an arms race that has gone on over the past five, six years in in creating content, right? Uh, there was a famous comment by uh, Reed Hastings of Netflix that said that we Netflix has to be 
become HBO faster than HBO can become Netflix. And so what he meant by that was that HBO has been creating, you know, the the uh, and the studios that were funneling movies to HBO have been making content for decades. They have large libraries. So for Netflix to create to compete with HBO as HBO and these other entertainment companies move into streaming, they had to create in within a span of a few years, decades worth of a library of content. They had to create so many movies. So they took just all their money from the stream from streaming activities or Amazon took all their money from what Amazon does, which is sell CPG and get products to you really quick for a cheap price. And they used it to finance just a, a plethora of movies, just an insane volume of movies over a short amount of time. So what does that do? That increases the volume, decreases the quality. Um, so the impact and uh, another friend of mine who's a manager in the film industry said also, because you can't judge the performance of movies on the streaming services as easily as you used to be able to judge box office, right? If you wanted to figure out whether or not a movie was successful before the Netflix and the Amazon Prime era or the Hulu era, you just saw the box office. You saw how many people fucking bought a ticket to go see the movie in the theaters and you knew what worked and what didn't. In the era of streaming, when a lot of the consumer activity and revenue has been shifted to the streaming services or to iTunes, it's harder to tell because they don't. Netflix doesn't release its numbers. Some of these other services are a little cloudy. And so it's more difficult for the people making movies or deciding which movies are going to be made to tell what's successful and what's not. So it's kind of broken the model. There was another piece in the New York Times before the Oscars this week that uh, discussed this called Streaming Took Over Hollywood, Will It Take Best Picture 2? It's this discussion over whether uh, uh, whether you know movies that are just uh, done specifically for streaming services are actually movies or TV movies. I mean, even Steven Spielberg seems to have said, once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. You certainly, if it's a good show, deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. So uh, all these things have kind of added up to really scramble, you know, uh, scramble the American film industry. And I think made it a lot less interesting. Um, and once again, the only, it took this freaking in- incident with Will Smith and Chris Rock to revive interest in Hollywood. So let's talk about that for a second. Okay, so the slap, everybody's got to have a take. You can't not have a take on the slap. Will Smith, Chris Rock, Scientology, toxic masculinity, the the whole shebang. You got to have a take on this lap. Okay, so what's going on here? Um, first off, like I said, I think there's definitely, it's curious, coincidental timing that everybody's talking about how the Oscars and the American film industry are irrelevant, dismissing it. And all of a sudden this incident happens. That's the, you know, the most high profile incident in the Oscars and God knows how long. I mean, we could see it in the numbers on the ratings. The ratings were circling the freaking drain for the first hour of this, uh, this broadcast. It was something around 13 million and it just doubles for the second half after the slap. All of a sudden the Oscars are interesting again. Um, and it was by this just ridiculous incident. Um, so I think, uh, you know, listen, I can't prove that it was staged, but you sure as hell see a lot of uh, is coincidental timing here. This single-handedly is breathed life back into the Oscars. But for a second, we will assume that this was a real incident, that Will Smith really thought that this was, he got so pissed off and needed to defend the honor of his wife, who is you know, really impaired his honor and really disrespected him publicly so much recently that he decided to go up in front of the world and slap Chris Rock in the face. Um, So Frank Oz, a Hollywood legend, he was one of the brains behind the Muppets, was the operator of the Yoda doll in Star Wars, I believe. He had an interesting comment uh, about the Oscars in general. 
After uh, being a member of the Academy for 30 years, I'm embarrassed to be associated with the Oscars telecast, not because of the slap, but because of the phoniness of the show. All I sense is a desperate attempt to get more viewers by any means possible, not a show about the love of making movies. And, and it doesn't it seem like everything about this was summed up by what Frank just said, that it's just a desperate attempt for attention everywhere. I mean, it's pretty pitiful uh, on Will Smith's part. I mean, if it is genuine, I mean, what did he think he was accomplishing? I mean, this is ridiculous. You're a grown man. This is a joke. And and everything about this Oscars broadcast, including it, it, the thing is, it, you know, it seemed it, it gathered so much attention because it seemed like an uh, an unorthodox situation. But it was an unorthodox incident that was also reflective of the rest of the show. It's all one big desperate attempt for attention, but not even one that's interesting. Right. It's kind of pathetic. Right. Um, and so uh, looking at, you know, Will Smith here for a second, man, I mean, in terms of star movie stars who no longer shine so brightly, I mean, he has a very engaging and friendly persona. It's re- has become one of the more beloved public figures in American life and this big movie star, et cetera, et cetera. You start peeking under the hood a little bit and it doesn't look so pretty. Um, first off, this dude, he's heavily involved in Scientology. I mean, the word in the industry is that he never officially joined, but um, he was definitely tiptoeing around it. In the 2000s, he was hanging out with Tom Cruise a lot. You know, never speak ill of Cruise in this uh, on this podcast, but it definitely is a data point that Will Smith was getting involved in Scientology. I worked, I was exposed to uh, an individual who worked on the production of the I Am Legend movie who said that Will Smith bought all of the cast and crew on that movie uh, free audits at the Church of Scientology and Will Smith and Jada Pinkett, they have a kind of charter school here in LA that definitely is informed by some Scientology principles. So you got that. Then you got the revelation of, you know, Will and Jada's relationship as an open relationship and, um, you know. I know that, oh, if you believe there's any taboos, if there's anything that should be looked down upon in terms of, uh, you know, sexual peccadilloes there, you're some raging freaking prude from the 1940s. But I'm sorry, like, I think open relationships for, you know, married people in their 50s are a little freaking weird. And if you got one, okay, I could see how that could work out within some kind of prescribed rules. And if you find the right balance, but why don't you keep it quiet, right? Will and Jada, you're not the first people to have an open relationship. Meanwhile, it just feels like and, and very much expressed through, you know, their son is this notion that uh, uh, being unorthodox means you're unli- enlightened. Ooh, look how enlightened we are that we have this open relationship. Well, you know uh, that it, you're not enlightened, Will. You just got a SoundCloud rapper, some SoundCloud R&B singer talking about plugging your wife in one of his songs earlier this year, and you just have to sit there and take it. So I, I don't I, I think we're. Um, or really, you know, uh, a lot of the peculiarities of Will Smith have been exposed and it's not, it doesn't look so pretty. And also he's one of these guys who's just obsessed with being famous to get as famous as Will Smith is. You got to have a bit of a screw loose, right? It's something that a lot of people noticed with that Taylor Swift documentary a couple years ago where you're, everyone's watching and, you know, everyone considered as this very, you know, kind of pristine, loving, slice of Americana, innocent young girl with a guitar. And they're like, oh my God, she's a rabid, ruthless, cutthroat lunatic who just wants nothing more uh, than to be the most famous person in the world. And Will Smith has got a little bit of that in him too. There was an interview. If you dig back through old interviews, there's an interview with Will Smith at the, you know, towards the earlier part of his career when he mentions that after the Fresh Prince, when he was embarking on his film career, he had a discussion with his uh, agent and they looked at the top 10 highest box office grossing movies of all time. And eight out of 10 were sci fi movies involving aliens. And that's what informed his decision to be an Independence Day and Men in Black and said, okay, if that's what people want, if those are the highest grossing films, those, that's how, what's going to guide my career. 
And it all points back to him being a bit of a synthetic performative guy and, and really, you know, not being not having not being as soulful and as genuine as a lot of people might see him. So some weird stuff about, you know, very much a, a, a desperate uh, a desperately performing uh, former movie star for a desperate, you know, attention whoring Oscars telecast for uh, a, an industry that's seen its better days. Beyond that, everybody had to do the culture war thing. You had to try to jam the in this incident and its implications into whatever your position was and validating your views on society and race, gender, comedy, speech. God knows what. Oh, my God, this will give you a headache. Go Google Will Smith toxic masculinity. It is just it's a parade of results deadline hollywood second thoughts on the oscars and toxic masculinity uh, another one anatomy of a slap seven sexist elements of will smith and chris rock's incident the hill will smith's slap of chris rock was a display of toxic masculinity jesus christ this will give you a headache um they did the racial essentialism thing so racial essentialism is when you make any incident about the race and the ethnicity and the skin color of the people involved regardless of the relevance of race to the incident. It's essentially saying that race is essential to every incident no matter what that people instead of interactions experiences um and dynamics being human experiences human in, in incidents that we are individuals and humans first no we are we are defined by our skin color so every incident and every event must be defined by race and skin color as well racial essentialism remember that one folks um so what do we see there cbs news all oh, will smith slap on chris rock runs the risk of inspiring racist tropes when it should raise questions about its toxicity oh god they just just can't help themselves. It's insane. They got to go there every time. And it's not helping anyone. BuzzFeed News. Our personal thoughts on the morality of Will Smith slapping Chris Rock aren't all that relevant, but the slap reinforced the ways in which public expressions of black anger gets Americans America's attention. Like that the response to this incident, if it would have been a white uh, assailant and a white recipient of the slap, nobody would have cared that the response would have been different. Like uh, it boggles the mind. They think that they, they, they're they so obsessed with race. They think everybody else is that obsessed with race. It was like, no, believe it or not, the vast majority of people out there actually see people as humans first and want to interpret things through the human experience as opposed to the as a as a white person, as a black male, as a, a gay transgender Eskimo or whatnot, that that. That's what defines the experience, but they just can't help themselves. Connor Friedersdorf, uh, he commented on the CBS News piece. This take boils down to don't invoke this incident to pejoratively generalize on the basis of race. Invoke it to pejoratively generalize on the basis of gender. How about neither? So, like, why don't we not ge generalize sex, gender, anything from these incidents? Why don't we look at it based on the context and the specifics of the incident, the people involved as humans, not members of a demographic category? As he goes on, this is, this is after all, wildly anomalous. Like, it's so ridiculous to take these really strange, odd, peculiar incidents and try to glean larger lessons about like uh, the, the, you know, the culture war incidents of the day. I mean, another very stupid one is uh, that words words mean violence. Another one of these ridiculous cultural manifestations stations of America over the past decade that, you know, up until and sticks and stones may break my bones. Words can never hurt me. We tossed that one out the window and all of it, you know, you would get laughed out of a room for saying that words are actual violence. Words equal violence up until about 2014. But now it's actually a prevailing view of quite a few people in power that, you know, that mocking someone in this case, a lot of people referencing mocking uh, uh, Jada Pinkett because she had a condition and she was going, you know, she's lost her hair, that this is violence, right? This is a patently absurd and ridiculous assertion, yet tons of people make 
take it and look at what leads from that. Uh, Lulu Chang Messervy, who's a, a head of communications for Substack, a great Twitter follow, uh, seems like people getting assaulted for telling jokes is the logical and obvious outcome of conflating words with actual violence. It's an interesting point. If we keep on claiming that words are violence, then that essentially justifies violence against anyone based on words. And as we've seen, that will lead to some really embarrassing and demeaning situations because Will Smith took that one a little too seriously. Um, so the slap, oh my God, the Oscars were on life support, single-handedly brought them back from the dead, further shown a light on the weirdo and and kind of betrayed the myth of Will Smith as one of America's last great movie stars. Man, it, we were dwindling in number there. Um, and certainly, and in, in not in a good way, seems to really sync up with what the direction of the, the American film industry these days. Um, so... You know, step off the right racial essentialism. Try not to do these takes about what lessons we can glean from the slap. And uh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe one of these days we'll get a little Oscar uh, Oscar whistleblower who, uh, you know, kind of explains why it's so curious that this incident happened just as the Oscars were completely losing relevance. Um, and also, Chris Rock is the best. He's one of, you know, if we are looking for people who have not betrayed their legacy in recent American life, uh, Chris Rock is one of them. So uh, he uh, he's going out on tour. I don't I don't know where he's going on tour. I hope I hope it's in the States. I think it's in Australia this week this year, but uh man would love to get catch him on that one. So up to Chris Rock. Team Chris will you gotta get your head straight, bro. Everybody, this is Matt Belinsky. This is The Prevailing Narrative. So I'm coming up in just a second, an interview with my good friend and wellness expert, Max Lugavere. He's a New York Times bestselling author with a, a number of books in the wellness space. He's releasing a new one called Genius Kitchen today, which is over 100 easy and delicious recipes to make your brain sharp, body strong, and taste buds happy. Um, this is a masterclass on all things health and wellness, but also the types of stuff that we like to discuss on The Prevailing Narrative, how the conversation affects the facts, right? That, that we'd like to think that health and wellness and and medicine is just about the science and the data. But no, unfortunately, in our modern era, uh, the way that people communicate on social media starts to impact how people respond and where where the uh, uh, what, what people's habits are, where the pub, where the public conversation goes really informs behavior. And so we also get into how that's been influenced in the trajectory of that. So coming up in a minute, me and Max Lugavere. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Ladies and gentlemen, Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. This is the prevailing narrative. And this week, I have a very special guest, my good friend, Max Lugavere. He is a health and science journalist and New York Times bestselling author, podcast extraordinaire with his podcast, The Genius uh, the Genius Life, and most importantly, a New Balance evangelist. Max, thank you so much for joining us here this week. Matt Belinsky. I know. What, what an honor it is to be here. It is quite a moment in time. I, I love to have witnessed your your rise to social media stardom. I mean, and you're just at the at the at the very cusp, at the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But it's been it's been so wonderful and so gratifying to watch because, you know, we've been friends for such a long time and I've always admired your intellectual prowess. Why, thank you. And you've created this amazing platform for yourself. So Mazel Tov. I, I appreciate that. Anyone who, you know, admires my intellectual prowess is a friend of mine. So, you know, we were always already buddies, but you're really endearing yourself right now. And of course, I got to watch your rise. It's an interesting story of, of your professional uh, evolution as we kind of met when you were you were kind of in the trenches on news and current events a few years back with Al Gore's with, with an experiment in broadcast television and broadcast news 
in particular with a company called Current TV, which was funded by Al Gore back in the mid 2000s. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and then we can kind of get into your your very unique backstory as to how you be, you, you started focusing on health and wellness and now have become one of the go to sources in that realm. Yeah. So I um, I started college on a pre-med track. I'd always been passionate about um, fitness science. I was I became interested in I feel like you're going to laugh at this, but bodybuilding when I was in high school. Yeah, it makes sense. No surprise here. <laughs> I became really interested in fitness science and um, and nutrition. And that led to me starting college on a pre-med track. But I realized halfway through my college career that I was also creative and a storyteller. And I stumbled into a class that was an introduction to motion pictures uh, at University of Miami, which is where I went to school. And I was kind of seduced by the idea of studying film um, as a major. And so I ended up studying film and psychology. I double majored. And uh, and that led to me getting this incredible job as a journalist working for Current TV, for Al Gore's TV network from 2005 to, I guess, about 2011. And um, it wasn't a political network. It really sought to empower young storytellers with um with the sort of megaphone that traditional media allowed and so just to interject because i think you'll find this interesting you may not know this i remember being at ucla law school and, and seeing a uh um, a lecture from, uh, it wasn't Al, but one of the other executives at Current about how the process of creating television and broadcast content was broken and how Current was starting to use then burgeoning technologies, which were, you know, the, the kind of foundation for the technologies we now use, but in a completely different form and not nearly as useful or as quick and, and as effective. But um, and the thesis of current TV was that the broadcast model was outdated and this was kind of the 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 new the new methodology. Right. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that thesis was that was supposed to be different and unique about current. Yeah. You probably saw the same lecture that I saw at my comm school at University of Miami by the two guys who were sort of on the road recruiting college it students. It was actually, it was one guy. He, he had glasses. He was a bit of an intellectual type. And he just said, hey, it, it, the the way that we create TV is so ridiculous. Yeah. Everybody has the, the capacity to create it. People didn't have smartphones in their hands yet, but he kind of right. suggested that we still had the tools, um, whether it was just personal personal recording equipment to go out and create great content and that nothing should the, the the gatekeepers of broadcast television and media should not be stopping anyone from doing. so." Yeah, I mean, point and shoot cameras. I remember I had one in college when which is when around this, this the time that we're talking about we're able to to create really epic video and and have really high sound quality for the price. It was like $250 for one of these cameras and you'd be able to like shoot almost cinema quality video. And then camcorders had gotten cheap enough and computing technology had gotten cheap enough and power and also powerful enough where your average person could then like edit mm -hmm. um you know seize the reins of really capable editing software at that point. Um, so to me, it sounded like a dream job when I stumbled into that same lecture. At the time, it wasn't even called Current TV. They had yet to name it. It was called Indie TV. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I jumped on that idea and I created this film as a, as an independent thesis as an undergraduate as part of my film major that I then sent to the powers that were at the network. And based on that film, they hired me to to basically anchor the network. Um, almost 24 hours a day, I was on TV, sort of like the Anderson Cooper for the network. And it wasn't like a political platform. It was really just, they gave the people that worked there who were by and large young, you know, up and coming, uh, talent in the world of media, the ability to create programming for this, for this network that reached a hundred million homes. And, um, would you say that <clears throat> current events and human interest stories would be more the, the label or the, the meta tag for that network ne necessarily than news and, pol and politics? 
Correct. Yeah. It was like current events. It was like, it was, it was a lot of evergreen content. We would occasionally do the more topical breaking news stuff, but, um, but it was largely evergreen culture stuff. Um, lots of fashion pieces, lots of technology, lifestyle, lifestyle content. Yeah, exactly. But what I think is like really interesting about the current TV model is that it launched almost in tandem at the exact same time as YouTube launched. And, um, obviously YouTube, you know, uh, eclipsed current TV by multiple orders of magnitude, but, um, but it was an interesting concept at that time. And it's something that, that really, uh, piqued my interest because I was a young, passionate storyteller. And so they, they basically saw in me the archetype that they were ultimately seeking to empower. And so they gave me a full-time job. They moved me out to Hollywood. They gave me a small salary. And I did that for about six years. Wow. I actually didn't know your tenure over there was, it was quite that long. Yeah. It was a long time. I mean, never made a lot of money, but learned a ton and, and got a good amount of notoriety from it. I left the job as being sort of, I, I wasn't famous by any stretch of the imagination, but I was like, quasi-public figure. I had gotten a, a decent amount of press at that point. I was verified on Twitter, which came with certain perks. And I had, and I, and I ended the job getting signed with one of these like major talent agencies, um, which put me up, you know, made me eligible for a number of interesting, um, post-current jobs, none of which panned out, which, uh, I, I think is for the better, which, you know, mm-hmm. in retrospect, so I think that's inter- that's an interesting period in digital media or let's call it alternative media and content to look back upon because everyone forgets that still 2005 to 2011 was once again in tandem with the launch of YouTube. So a platform for people to create their own videos and put them out there into the universe and perhaps gather following notoriety create create an alternative to what uh, you know to the to the legacy and the prestige networks um but it was before instagram and it was before the internet you know before high speed internet so it was still difficult to consume video mm. and it was kind of uh, looking back on it you've had this generation of the first that first wave of let's call it inner you know uh influencers or digital creators and what form were they and they, they were some bloggers there were some bloggers who hit escape velocity became you know semi pseudo famous during that period and then have turned that into some sort of some some turned that into uh, uh, new, you know, digital news uh, entities, the, the, you know, the people behind BuzzFeed or Huffington Post or some of those uh, publications. Um, what else were you seeing at that time that kind of that you see, if not a straight line from that seems to have been the foundation of things that had some continuity to our current era where everything is niche fragmented and we have a completely democratized information and content environment? Well, I think the problem with current was that it was unable to uh, cater to that, the, that that ultimate fragmentation that the mediascape was ultimately going to undergo. And that was, that's what led to current's ultimate demise. Um, the fact that like this idea of millennials watching mass media uh, is sort of like an oxymoron. It just doesn't, that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, like there's no like ratings for these like big, you know, appointment viewing television events are at all time lows. Right. And millennials are certainly one of the last, or I I think one of the, have been one of the first demographics to, to jump ship. Um, but at that time current was revolutionary because as I mentioned, YouTube was, was brand new. Um, we didn't really know where that was going. Cause as you mentioned, Wi-Fi wasn't something that was like super fast and totally ubiquitous yet. Yeah, people still forget the, how the experience of consuming content, whether video or even photographs, they even kind of, for God knows what reason, tripped and fell into some old photos on a friend's account on Facebook uh, this past week. And you look at the photos from 2008 and to 2011 or so. I mean, they, they look from truly another era. Yeah. I talk, they look 50 years old, right? And people really do, you know, 
have memory hold a little bit just how um how how crude and rudimentary the content experience was even through the early 2010s yeah and also nobody saw at that point like that the iphone was going to become the dominant smartphone uh among younger people, right? Like we were, could have been the BlackBerry. It could have been the BlackBerry. We were still using black. I loved having my BlackBerry at the time before I, obviously before I experienced the iPhone, but, um, but those were not video capable devices. Right. So it was really hard to see where, where everything was going. Um, but that being said, current was revolutionary in the sense that younger people, citizen journalists, what have you would submit content to the network. And within a week it would be on TV. Like that mm-hmm. was an amazing t- to be on TV at that point. Like, yeah, it still had all the clout that um, that it had had for decades prior yeah. to, you know, prior to like recent times. Um, so that it was an incredible opportunity for anybody looking to like build a name for themselves, uh, you know, have a little bit of like get a little bit of credibility under their hat as a filmmaker. Um, and so, yeah, I love the role and, yeah. and it, and it was again, like amazing exposure for me. No, absolutely. It seems like current was ahead. was, was very prescient about video and content creation, not so much about distribution and consumption, but a, a lot of interesting lessons to, to take from that experience. I'm sure both, both from yourself or for anyone who's kind of observing and studying media and in, information. So, um, onto your current iteration, which is, uh, once again, as a health and science journalist and specialist in the wellness space. And, uh, this is also a very, you know, unique and personal journey that you took and how you became interested, gained a proficiency and became an expert and and a notable source in this world. Yeah. So it was about 2011. I had just come off of that run at Current TV. I felt like my mileage, I had gotten, you know, all of the mileage possible from that job. Um, And uh, the viewership there had plateaued. So they, they sort of, they were, they, they had kind of hit a, uh, I guess a, a plateau themselves as a network, and we're starting their their slow and inevitable decline. And, and current TV doesn't exist anymore. So I jumped ship. I think at the appropriate time, where I had, you know, sucked whatever sort of marrow I could from it, and and was onto hopefully greener pastures. I had signed with this like talent agency, and they put me up for a number of really big shows, um, but none of them really panned out. And uh, the issue is that like I I had gotten really used to. Um, creating content on my own terms and and creating content ultimately that um had sort of a deeper mission of impacting the world in a in a positive way um and uh and you know my passions were as i mentioned health fitness nutrition um technology how technology is augmenting health i became really interested in um these kurzweilian ideas of how the singularity and and technology the rise of nanotech is going to ultimately um halt or at least mitigate biological aging and all those ideas were sort of i was i was marinating in like a bunch of those sort of ideas and trying to figure out where i wanted to go next and meanwhile this agency was putting me up for these big like music shows and and i just there was no way that that i was going to be able to compete with like the nick cannons of the world and all the other like actual celebrities yeah who ended up getting those jobs right so ultimately my agency dropped me and um and i was in a bit of a uh, uh, i was at a point of career despair and at that exact moment in my personal life, I started spending more and more time because I had the leisure, the ability to do so because I was in between gigs um, at home in New York City, which is where I'm from and around my mother. And uh, I come from a very small Jewish family. I'm the oldest uh, in a family of, of three um, and, uh, and very close to my mom. 
And it was then, it was about 2011, 2012, that she started to complain of brain fog and, and problems with her memory and her ability to express herself. And in tandem with that, there were changes to her gait, which is how a, per, a person walks. Now, I had no, I was a, compl- I was a lay person uh, at the time, and I had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative disease. I also harbored, I think, a lot of misconceptions that many people harbor about neurodegenerative conditions like dementia, that it's genetic, that it's an old person's disease. Um, that it's, you know, if it's in your family tree, it's something that, um, that you will ultimately, uh, have to succumb to, uh, at some point. Um, so, uh, so I started going with my mom to different doctor's appointments, um, around the city. She lived across the street from NYU. So we started there not being able to find answers. Ultimately we went to, uh, Columbia uptown, couldn't find answers. Oftentimes a, do- a doctor would run a battery of esoteric tests, write a few prescriptions down and send us on our way. One do- one physician actually thought it was depression. So put my mom on sertraline, which is Zoloft, uh, a common um, SSRI, antidepressant drug. But it wasn't until the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Ohio, we booked a trip there, known for taking on very complex medical cases, assembling a team around the patient. In one room, you'll have an endocrinologist, a cardiologist, a PCP. And it was there for the first time that she was diagnosed with a, a neurodegenerative condition. The, the neurologist prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease at the same time. And I did at that point what any millennial with a data plan would do. I consulted Dr. Google. I went to the Wikipedia page for the drugs that my mom was prescribed. And these phrases stood out to me like no disease modifying effect, terminal. You know, nobody's ever recovered from Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease, progressive, incurable. And it was that point in my life that I, uh, for the first time ever, remember having a a panic attack. Um, I felt the the walls of the room that I was in, the the Holiday Inn Hotel closing in on me. And it was, uh, it marked a point of no return for me where I became fixated on trying to understand why this happened to my mom, the woman who I cared most about um, of of any other person on the planet and at such a young age, no less. Is there anything out there in terms of the medical liter- literature with regard to a diet or lifestyle intervention that might have a disease modifying effect? And finally, what could be done to prevent this from ever happening to, to myself? Because I now have a risk factor. I could very easily, I realized at that point, I had the fortitude to know, even though I wasn't a medical doctor, that, you know, if you have a family member that, that develops one of these chronic um, types of conditions, that you're very much at risk. And so that was about a, a decade ago. Um, and, uh, and it, it took a long time to, to turn all of this into a, a, a career that wasn't, that certainly wasn't my intent. Um, when I, when I first got started, what were your discoveries from this research? There were some very specific discoveries about the, the impact, the connection between nutrition and, and these degenerative diseases and in particular brain health. And you came to some very specific conclusions here from your research. Yeah. So the first, um, insight that I gleaned was that dementia often begins in the brain years, if not decades before the first symptom. So to me, by, by some estimates, 30 to 40 years. So if you take my mom's age at the time, which was 58 and you subtract 30, which is a conservative estimate, um, you got my age. And, and so I was, I, I realized that this is definitely not an old person's condition. This is something that we all need to be talking about. And especially at that point with the oldest millennial approaching the age of 40. I mean, now at this point, the oldest millennial is, I believe, 40 or 41 or, or something like that. Um, I realized that this is very much a millennial topic and millennials are not talking about this. You know, like I, I was just like shocked that, that nobody amongst my generation was, was talking about this. Um, 
I was interested in it only because I was in the in the sort of throes of coming to terms with the fact that a loved one had this condition. But I realized that I needed to get younger people talking about it. And I, and I also realized as a storyteller, as a professional storyteller, that facts tell stories sell. That if I was going to sell this notion of dementia prevention, um, that it was going to be with the fact that my mother was very relatable, that I was very relatable and a good communicator, and um, and that I had this incredible opportunity to really move the, the needle on this on this condition. And there were a few other insights that I gleaned along the way. For one, I mean, this might shock some listeners, but that it takes 17 years on average for what's discovered in, 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 in research to be enacted in day-to-day clinical care. So 17 years, I'm like, we have loved ones on the line, right? We have our own cognitive health on the line, like that that's unacceptable. Um, and there were, there were a number of, of other sort of insights that I had, that I had gleaned upon, but ultimately what it co- comes down to is that these are multi, these are complex multifactorial conditions like cardiovascular disease, like cancer. They don't develop overnight. They take years, if not decades to manifest. And over that time, we have a degree of agency. We don't have all the answers, um, but we certainly have enough so as not to feel like sitting idly on our hands is the only option. Um, there are certain risk factors that are not modifiable. For example, age, not modifiable. Gender, not modifiable. Genes, not modifiable, right? But your diet is modifiable. Whether or not you smoke, that's a modifiable risk factor. Your overall activity levels, your uh, tendency to exercise or not, those are all variables which fall under your control. And there are others. Um, so for me, it was about it was about becoming a walking meta-analysis, understanding front and back all of the sort of uh, modifiable aspects of one's life um, that uh, that we might choose to um, interact with, and uh, and spreading the good the the good word about about those variables. And so, okay, so you understood that there are behavior, uh, behavioral and atmospherical and environmental conditions that do lead to this. It's not just all fixed immutable characteristics of your genetics, your background, or your age, right? So in particular, you found out a, a link between processed and modified foods and in particular carbohydrates, which do not serve your brain, regardless of the dietary, uh, the dietary components or impact do not serve your brain and your brains function very well. Yeah. So, I mean, my views have evolved over the past six years. And I think today, the way that I would characterize my dietary views most succinctly would be to minimize to the best of one's ability, uh, one's consumption of ultra processed foods. And we can, we can define those, um, in a few, uh, as best as one can, um, you're not gonna be able to, minim- to, to completely eliminate your consumption of those foods because they're, that we're in c- constant proximity to them, um, mm-hmm. in the modern food environment. Right. It would be to focus on minimally processed um, animal and plant products. So animal proteins, uh, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, poultry, wild fatty fish, for example, eggs, all wonderful options. And we can unpack why, you know, why I've made those recommendations. And whole plants, dark leafy greens, cruciferous vegetables, low sugar fruits, nuts, seeds, you name it. Um, to me, it's it's about getting back to uh, a, a diet that is less processed. Today, 60% of the calories that your average American consumes comes from ultra-processed foods. These are the foods that um, hang out in the center of the supermarket. All supermarkets are designed in the same way. Few people realize this, but it's the perimeter of the supermarket that holds all of the fresh, perishable foods. Mm-hmm. It's the aisles where the ultra-processed, shelf-stable foods tend to be. And it's those foods which really characterize the standard American diet. And the standard American diet is, uh, make no mistake, it's an obesogenic diet. It's a diet that has caused um, the 
I think one of the most pressing epidemics, um, and it's not COVID-19, it's the obesity epidemic, whereby mm -hmm. the year 2030, one in two adults are going to be not just overweight, but obese. That is scary. That is a disturbing, disturbing fact. And then it starts to make a lot more sense and become even more disturbing when you start tracing that back specifically to the instructions given to us by public health and the government. And as you look in a lot of people who may be, let's call it above the ages of 32 to 35, I think the the kind of keto um, or, or Atkins diet or the discovery of the harmful nature of carbohydrates and the potential of a heavy protein or all protein diet and ketogenic diet kind of came around early mid 2000s. So, but if you're above the age of 32 to 35, you remember as a kid, you were getting the, the health advice and instruction you were getting from public health officials, from someone who, uh, other than, you know, a personal doctor, what you were told to that was based on something called the food pyramid and the food pyramid essentially, essentially advocated for the heaviest part of your, the most significant part of your diet to be bread, cereal, rice, and pasta, six to 11 servings a day. So they specifically, the government for decades was specifically telling us to eat the things that would be most likely to make us fat. And while the the, you know, the food pyramid has now been delegitimized, certainly in your circles. I'm sure that there's a lot of the American population that, you know, this this information has not filtered to necessarily yet. But there are people who, for a, one of a variety of reasons, um, just unfortunately gravitate towards really unhealthy habits and and food sources to begin with. But I mean, this was the stated advice of the United States government and the public health officials speaking on its behalf for decades. I mean, that feels I mean, it's kind of like you want to talk about like an alien society or God knows what universe we were living in. I mean, that's just mind boggling and had to really be disturbing after you were making your discoveries as to the impact that that type of diet and those inputs were having on people and their brain function. Well, that's why I think the precautionary principle is so important because you're right. I mean, that was the that was the dietary advice that was drilled into the the hearts and minds of the American people for decades. Right, eat seven to eleven servings of grains every single day. I mean, I don't eat that that quantity of grains in a month. Yeah. Um, and it just it you know it reminds you of the fact that it was legal to use lead in paint right up until the seventies. The fact that yep. thalidomide was used as a as a viable drug and led to all kinds of birth defects. The fact that um, BPA, for example, which was uh, originally um, designated as an estrogen replacement drug, and it's now in in any number of plastic products. Uh, most, I think, perniciously in the in the in in plastic products that we store our food in. So there's there there's there are mistakes constantly being made, and it's our health that's paying the price. Um, and so that's interesting in terms of equipment, cooking equipment, and storage equipment, because uh, uh, these get bandied about a lot, particularly when you start talking about the uh, drop in you know the the median testosterone or the mean testosterone levels of the American male. Right, yeah. that there are testosterone inhibiting or har you know hurt, uh, harmful to your testosterone levels um uh, uh ingredients or elements or chemicals in all types of plastic or nonstick pans and things of that nature i mean to what extent are those you know are, are that is that a myth are, are these concerns valid and to what extent no there has been a slow decline of uh testosterone over the past few decades and i don't um i don't have any exact numbers to uh to share but um i i know that this is the case anecdotally i have a lot of friends who um, have uh, low testosterone for their age when compared to age-matched controls, um, and it, it seems to be it seems to be a, a silent epidemic for men. And I think that I, I think that there are probably a few reasons for it. I think it's um, overindulgence in 
on on these like ultra processed foods i think the added the epidemic of of added sugar is a big problem there have been studies that have shown that one high sugar bolus can reduce testosterone um acutely for two hours that's crazy and uh yeah and we consume about 77 grams of added sugar every single day and and that seems to be one of the beyond just the the kind of categorical you know uh, uh kind of dissuade or disabusing us of the categorical myth about carbohydrates versus meats, fats, and whatnot. Okay, we figure that out, right? But I don't think people quite understand just how much sugar they're consuming. If people understood where sugar is hiding in in non-sweets, in non-desserts, and items that they don't naturally think of as sugar-infused, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, Condiments, ketchup, sauces, salad dressings, everything, sugar, Bread products, su- yeah. sugar is literally all over the place, except in just pure, you know, organic lean meats, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and whole fruits and, and fresh produce, but yeah, the insidious nature of it is what makes it so treacherous, right? That it's just, it's everywhere. Um, and again, we've shown that one single high sugar bolus is enough to drop testosterone. And this, this effect has been shown to persist for hours, for two hours post ingestion. Um, it can cause an elevation of systolic blood pressure. We know that having a healthy blood pressure is crucial for having a healthy brain. And just one single high sugar bolus can cause a, a, a significant elevation of your of your blood pressure by stimulating your body's fight or flight um, response. So I think that I think that the, the sugar is playing a role in the fact that, you know, our testosterone levels are, are collectively um, out of whack. But I think it's also going back to these xenoestrogen compounds, these plasticizing chemicals, whether it's parabens or phthalates or bisphenols. Um, they all, they, they present a big problem. And how can the average consumer out there combat that? Well, I think the, the, the easiest way and the, and the, and the lowest hanging fruit is to minimize your exposure to plastic and particularly in the kitchen environment. Um, stop eating food out of that common plastic containers. Mm -hmm. If it's dry food, it's fine. Right. But if it's, if it's hot food, if it's moist, if it's salty, acidic, um, is it kind of peeling off some of the plastic and you're consuming it? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it essentially does. It's like these, these ions are able to enter your food and, and you it's, I mean, think about sous vide. You're like boiling food in plastic in hot water. Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect way of adding plastic to your body. Yeah. They've found, um, actually that there have been very recently discovered micro, microplastics for the first time in human serum. Mm-hmm. So this is a, it's a, it's a huge problem. It's also... You know, in our furniture, dust gets sloughed off. We end up inhaling it or ingesting it. Um, there's a significant amount of BPA used to create heat-sensitive um, store registers, uh, receipts. Um, so when you touch receipts and then humans have, a, we have a lot of hand-to-mouth behavior, whether or not we like to admit it, it ends up in circulation. Um, so it's a big problem. These are, these, are, these are compounds that act like estrogen in the body. They're, in, they're called endocrine disruptors. Um, and so, yeah, big, big problem. Another one of your, if you're uh, the, the discovery of the Max Lugavere villains, the villains of the American lifestyle and diet. Um, and uh, also with their kind of counterpoint, their contrapoint of one that you're a heavy advocate for is in terms of oils and per- particularly the villainous constructs of seed oils as contrasted with the innumerable health benefits of olive oil, particularly 
uh, organic uh, uh, virgin olive oil. Extra virgin olive oil. Love that. Let's hear about that. Yeah. So I think that the it's like the cheap and easily digested refined carbohydrates that play a big problem. The added sugar plays a big problem. Um, and then these grain and seed oils, I think, also play a big problem. Now, we don't have all the evidence required to say that these are toxic to the brain, but because they're made of polyunsaturated fats, these are the exact same kinds of fats that your brain is constituted with. And we know that these fats are delicate, damage prone. They're prone to a form of chemical disfigurement called oxidation. Um, and normally when found in the context of the whole food matrix, they're bound with antioxidants, powerful antioxidants devised by mother nature, riding in tandem with these fats so as to protect them, right? But the problem is when we extract these oils, sometimes using harsh chemical solvents like hexane, other times not, they go, they undergo innumerable industrial processes that harm the oil. They're exposed to light, they're exposed to heat. Um, and so these oils oxidize and they also... Uh, undergo other forms of, of chemical damage, like uh, the generation of man-made trans fats. So all of these grain and seed oils um, undergo, it's sort of like the food industry's equivalent of the witness protection program. It's the same, it's the reason why you can use the same oil to saute food in in a restaurant. You can use it to fry nuts in and call them quote unquote roasted nuts. They're the same oils that you can use in children's cereal in granola bars, in salad dressings, in mayos. They have no taste. They have no flavor profile, right? So they, the, to, to, to make, to, to get these oils, um, to wring them free of any notable characteristics, they undergo a process called deodorization. And that process creates a small but significant amount of trans fats. Now, trans fats in there were most uh, abundantly found in the human food supply up until a couple of de decades ago in the form of partially hydrogenated vegetable oils. So margarines. I grew up consuming margarine um, instead of butter because it was the quote-unquote heart-healthy alternative to saturated fat-dominant butter and other animal fats. I, had, I remember having corn oil in a big plastic tub by the stove. Um, but the issue is that these oils, they all, they have these, these trans fats now um, without having undergone this this partial hydrogenation process. And trans fats, there's no safe level of trans fat consumption. They're poisonous to your cardiovascular system. Their consumption is associated even among young and healthy people with worse memory function. They do put you at increased risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. Uh, they also further degrade when we cook with them. So this is another problem. You can buy them, you can pluck them, quote unquote, fresh off the store shelves. And they already, this process of oxidation has already been set into motion. But when you cook with them, when you apply heat, um, and also when you reheat them, which is often the case in restaurant fryers, certain compounds called aldehydes are generated, many of which are, are directly toxic, mutagenic, cancer-causing, dam damaging to your mitochondria, which are the uh, energy-producing organelles of your cells. Um, so they're definitely not uh, fats that you want to have, that you want to over overindulge on. Studies have shown that um, adipocyte concentration, so your adipocytes are your, are your fat cells. Um, your adipose tissue is, is your white fat and adipocytes are fat cells. Your fat cells literally store the fats that you consume. So that saying you are what you eat, it's a, it's a truism with scientific backing. And studies have shown that adipocyte concentration of linoleic acid, which is the dominant fatty acid found in these grain and seed oils, has increased more than twofold over the past 50 years alone. 
And that's due to the fact that that the the primary fat, the primary oil now you uh, consumed in the standard American diet is soybean oil, which is this dirt cheap commodity, you know, crop subsidized by the U.S. government, um, v- rich in omega six fats. More, more worse than, worse than that though, it's that they're these fats are highly delicate, damage prone. They're not protected by the anti the, by the antioxidants that they would perhaps be found that would be found in soy in whole soybeans, right? And at the end of the day, a damaged fat damages you. And so the bad fats, how about the good fats? Because you seem to be quite an advocate of healthy fats in particular. You know, I don't don't want to call you a full blown carnivore, but or maybe at certain junctures over the past five, six years since you've been on this journey, you have been. But you're very much a a proponent of a meat heavy diet. It is it 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 codes and it and it maps to the human experience um evolutionary wise. It, it, our ancestors were meeting were eating animal fats and animal proteins constantly and you know just based on common sense, why would we currently be fearful of such? Uh maybe you could give us a little bit of background on your philosophy there and yeah. what the types of things we should be eating are. Yeah, so I don't actually it's funny cuz like when you said meat heavy, I don't think of myself as eating a meat heavy diet, but I guess to the to the woke nutritional orthodoxy, I do eat a meat oh, heavy. Oh, we'll get diet. to them in just a second. Don't yeah. you don't you worry. We're not there yet. We'll yeah. get there. Yeah. Um but I actually I advocate for I think a very balanced diet of of like half the plate being constituted with properly raised animal proteins and then the other half whole plants um but i do think that meat is uh i mean i do think that it's essential in an in an optimized diet i think that you can optimize a diet that is a a meat-free diet but is it optimal for the human animal is it a biologically appropriate diet um i don't think so The, the the issue with meat is that you get certain minerals you get certain compounds in meat that are um, highly bioavailable to us because we we're meat, right? Like, make no mistake, we're yeah. we're animals, right? And so, carnitutrients, nutrients that are found in animal products, are plug and play um, with regard to our own biology. We can look to omega three fatty acids, which in their preformed state, eicosapentaenoic acid or EPA fat or docosahexaenoic acid or DHA fat. DHA fat is one of the most important structural building blocks for the human brain. It's found in animal products. It's found in fish. It's found to to a smaller degree in grass-fed beef. It's found in eggs. Plant-based forms of omega-3s have to go undergo complex biochemical transformation before they can be properly utilized in our bodies. And that, that process differs in terms of e- efficacy and efficiency from person to person, gender to gender, genetic background to genetic background. So you're leaving a lot to chance if you're relying on plants for your omega-3s, for example. And that's not the only nutrient where this is the case. You can look at uh, vitamin A or retinol. When you eat an animal product like liver, for example, or egg yolks, or I mean, we'll even say grass-fed butter, you're getting vitamin A in its preformed state, retinol. It's plug and play to your biology. A lot of people consider beta-carotene vitamin A. That's how we refer to it, but it's actually not vitamin A. It's pro-vitamin A. It has to be converted to retinol in your body um, which it does for the most part, but the ability to do that is different person to person. And some people, um, I believe their ability to convert uh, beta carotene to vitamin A is reduced by about 25%, if not more. Um, so you're leaving lots of chance. And depending on where you're from, your ancestry, uh, it's clear that um, many of these nutrients are in their most bioavailable form um, in animal products. I guess the, the, the most classic example is heme iron. You know, so for anybody suffering from iron deficiency anemia, anemia affects one in four people globally. So it's a major problem. And about half of those cases are due to iron deficiency. Red meat is the ultimate iron supplement. 
Um, and so, so there's that. There's fish. I mean, you can't really have a conversation about dementia prevention and not bring up the value of wild, fatty fish. The the, the properties of fish and the nutrition and nutritional properties do seem to have a uniquely powerful benefit to brain health and brain function. Am I correct? You're correct. And I'll explain why. It's actually really, really kind of interesting. So if you were to take animal fat, like, uh, like, a, like a land animal, like a cow, for example, and take its fat and put it in the fridge, what would happen to the fat? It would get, it would harden, right? It would become really solid. Whereas if you left it out at room temperature, it would become really soft, right? Fish inhabit really cold water the equivalent of the earth's refrigerator, right? Being mm-hmm. like down at deep sea levels. And so they need their, f- their flesh, right? And their, and their cell membranes to not become rigid at those mm-hmm. temperatures. So fish fat, one of the reasons why fish fat is so precious is it's because they're comprised of these polyunsaturated fatty acids. They're very fluid. They have this incredible characteristic of, of fluidity. And that is in fact the exact reason why our brains are constituted of these fats. Because mm-hmm. our brains... You know, we have neurons that are firing off trillions of messages a minute. Um, They have to possess this characteristic known as fluidity, membrane fluidity. It's crucially important for having an optimally functioning brain. And DHA fat, which fish, fatty fish contain in abundance, is one of the most important structural building blocks of the of the brain. So that's why fish are just so we have this like incredible symbiosis with with fish and the fats that they contain. That is a fascinating explanation. It's one of those dynamics that's bubbling just below the surface of everyone's consciousness. They know it to be true, but they don't quite know why. And so that's that we love bringing those people, those those in-depth ex- explanations of these phenomenon that they kind of know to be true, but they don't quite understand the blood and guts. And I'm sure that a lot of this informs your most recent work, which is released today, believe it or not, The Genius Kitchen, which is captioned over 100 easy and delicious re- recipes to make your brain sharp, your body strong and taste buds happy. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit about this book, how it relates to your other previous release texts, which have all reached the New York Times bestsellers list. Um, would love to hear more about it. Yeah. So Genius Kitchen is a, it's a two-in-one book. It's a cookbook. So we've got over a hundred amazing recipes using low cost, easy to access ingredients. Um, nothing too convoluted in the book. They range in, in terms of their complexity to prepare, but um, we've got something for everybody in the book. Uh, but it's also a wellness guide and kitchen guide. So it breaks apart each food component and it um, you use the term blood and guts. It sort of gives you the blood and guts of my recommendations um, in a way that makes it really under easy to understand why I recommend certain foods and why I may recommend abstaining or at least minimizing um, your exposure to, to certain foods. But in general, I think why I've been so quote unquote successful in, in this sort of wellness world is that my approach is, is very balanced. It's dogma free. Um, like I'm a big advocate, for example, of grass finished beef, right? Coming, living in LA and having attained, thankfully, a certain level of, of financial independence, I can easily access and afford grass-finished beef, right? But that doesn't mean that gra- that grain-finished beef, for example, which is the predominant form of beef sold um, and consumed in the United States, is bad, right? It's still one of the most nutrient-dense foods in the supermarket. And if that's all that you have access to, then I want to I wanna get rid of the stigma that sometimes is cast upon, upon that kind of food. It, you know... There's a little bit of cognitive dissonance, uh, I'll, I'll admit, because I don't like promoting the factory farm system. I think it's like it's cruel to the animals. It's abhorrent in terms of its, uh, you know, what it's doing to local and global ecosystems. But um, my bias is towards human health. And uh, and I think you just can't get around the fact that, for example, even conventionally raised beef is a still is a, a much better option for dinner than boxed mac and cheese. 
even farm-raised salmon. Um, you know, I, I prefer to, to eat wild salmon. Um, when I'm in restaurants, I'm sure I eat farmed uh, on occasion, but it's still going to be a better option. And, and, the, and the observational data suggests that um, the benefits still outweigh the risks with regard to eating farm-raised fish. So, um, so I kind of, yeah, I kind of lay it all out in my book from dairy to plants, to meat, to fish, to eggs, to salt, to water, you know, what to sort of prioritize and, and sort of optimize for what to, what to attempt to minimize. And then we've got the, the recipes. And so, um, yeah, it's a really sort of practical book. Uh, it's where the rubber hits the road in terms of nutrition, right? Delicious meals. And, um, and I'm on the cover. So look at that. There you go. Yeah. Most importantly, Max is on the cover. <laughs> um, kind of to the, these, this, this book would be the practical manifestations of a lot of the knowledge that you're dispensing on in this chat right now, which is incredible, you know, uh, obviously very informed by God knows how many, you know, studies and, and understanding of the diseases that, that affect us, the nutrients that we consume and whatnot. Um, and you know, uh, on this podcast, I, I always harp on kind of how cultural hostilities and dogmas you mention start to disrupt the hard science or the hard facts and hard data around a variety of topics. And unfortunately, it turns out that health and wellness and nutrition have not been immune to this this poison over the last, you know, the, the this great era where everyone's able to be, create content and become an information source and build their own career around, you know, around being um, a, a digital source or a digital creator has unfortunately been impacted by the fact that, like I said, cultural hostility seem to contaminate so many different conversations. They have in the wellness community as well. Um, you have bumped up against it in, in particular, I'd say, in two manifestations. One, the vegan community and two, the body positivity movement. <laughs> yeah. So what 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 has been going on in terms of, let's call it the prevailing narratives, both uh, literal and figurative and tongue in cheek in the wellness community? And, and where's the conversation at and, and where are people bumping up against each other? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you, you, you totally nailed it. It's, it's really those two areas. One would be the health at any size movement, um, which claims that there is no relationship between obesity, for example, and long-term health. Um, there's, there are a lot of straw man fallacies to come out of that, out of that, uh, sort of sect online. Um, you know, they'll argue against the BMI as an, as an obesity screening tool. It's actually a very valuable obesity screening tool. It's not a good diagnostic tool, but they'll often conflate those two, um, facts, the BMI is basically, uh, it's the body mass index. So it basically uses a very simple calculation. Um, it's your, it's, it, it involves your weight and your height. I forget the exact, uh, formula, but it basically, um, characterizes you based on your body size. And if you're a bodybuilder, it's not going to be the most, uh, reliable for you because it does not distinguish between fat mass and lean mass. Um, it also becomes more inaccurate at certain, uh, with, with height outliers, but by and large, most people are average by by definition, right? They're not these like you know bodybuilders or height outliers. And so, when looking at the population level, BMI is actually a fantastic screening tool to to look for obesity. No physician is going to diagnose you with obesity based on your BMI. They're going to look at your body composition, maybe the, your body fat percentage. Um, but that's just one of the areas where they where they love to uh, you know they they love to pick on the BMI because BMI might have a certain flaw in not accounting for body composition. So they they throw the baby out with the bathwater and they say they demonize BMI despite the fact that it can it's predictive to a pretty sizable extent of whether or not you're obese and it might it might you might just need to account for edge cases. Yeah, I would say that most people who complain about the BMI probably are have a large one. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, unfortunately, 
we, I mean, we know that having a healthy body composition is an, is an important um, aspect of, of good health. Now, there are there is a minority of people that are overweight um, and metabolically healthy. Uh, but, you know, that is not, should not be expected to persist throughout one's lifespan. Right. Um, and of course there is a, there's a proportion of people who are normal weight and metabolically obese. But again, these are, these are outliers. The norm is that if you are, um, overweight and especially very overweight, you are going to have some other component of metabolic syndrome, right? We already know that having an an oversized waistline is associated with worse, um, cardiovascular health because your, your, your visceral fat secretes inflammatory hormones. Um, and, and, and messenger, messenger signals like cytokines, um, which can play a role in the etiology of, of innumerable chronic conditions. So it's not good to, to store fat, um, on your, you know, an excessive amount of fat, um, on the, on the waist. And, uh, this isn't to say that you need to be like shredded or in fitness competition form, but, um, but I think we can't, you know. I think it's just uh, it's a fallacy at this point to say that you that that you can be healthy at any size. And it seems so evident of all these other just ridiculous battles we're having in the public sphere these days of people trying to demonize or or intimidate people away from positions that we've known to be true for thousands and thousands of years out of some sense of moral obligation or the moral appeal that anything is okay or just because in the past we might have promoted or or the advertising world and the entertainment world might have promoted unrealistic goals or or visions of beauty and that the people that were most in the public eye were those outliers at the top of the heap in terms of health fitness or uh, attractiveness and the solution apparently to these people is to throw out every basic understanding and notion that we have about physical fitness or health and promote just the opposite as the ideal just to i guess shove it in the face of the traditionalists yeah, but the but you know these industries are also complicit in the etiology of of conditions like obesity, which is a disease. You know, like the the junk food, the mantra of the junk food industry and the dietetics industry, I'll add, for for a long time has been that calories really are are all that matter, and calories certainly matter. But um, you know, the, the the junk food industry really wants people to believe that all foods fit, and that it's really n- it's it's not their fault; it's your fault that you're overweight. All you need to do to to right the ship, so to speak, is to eat less and move more, right? But it's the food products that they create. They have this. There's this characteristic of that they that they all sort of have called hyperpalatability. Um, they're also minimally satiating. So it's that it's the confluence of those two features that putting this in layman's terms, they taste really good and don't fill you up. They taste really good. They don't fill you up. And they're those are the foods that are at the, at the foundation of the obesity epidemic. And the reason for that is that they, by the time you filled yourself up on them, you've already overconsumed them. The same can't be said for minimally processed whole foods, the kinds of foods that you would perhaps, you know, you know create for yourself. Um, and so for most people struggling with overweight, they look when given that advice to just eat less, move more, they look at the food that they're already eating, right? The obesogenic food that got them into this position to begin with. And they, they, they try to minimize, they try to moderate their consumption of those foods, but those foods are not designed to be consumed in moderation and willpower is a finite resource. So you've already lost the battle. Um, if that's really what your, uh, what, what your approach is. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't put all the blame on these people. And I do think that we need to stop like I think fat shaming is a problem. I think that uh, you can, you certainly sh- can and should love yourself at any size, right? But 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 getting yourself to a healthy body composition should be an expression of the love that you have for yourself. 
at the end of the day. No doubt. I see you here with uh, with uh, the kind of boyfriend looking away meme and you got the the aggrieved girlfriend is cancel culture. The boyfriend looking away is you and uh, and the the attractive woman walking down the street is science based nutrition. And uh, I, I guess what you were just describing is the cancel culture manifestation in the health and wellness community. And I, it seems to be doing a lot of damage here. And I mean, how how prevalent is this dynamic? It seems that uh, the health and wellness world, because it is. It is scientific, scientifically grounded. It's it, it's in a good position to combat these people trying to insert new ideologies that might be so nonsensical that it just assumes that people will gravitate to them because they sound avant garde. I don't know how how bad is the 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 discourse going in that world. Well, nutrition is sort of a unique field because people tend to make their diets their identity. Um, and so people feel very strongly, they strongly guard their, their dietary pattern, whether they are carnivores or vegans or pescatarians or gluten-free or what have you. I mean, it's like, there's a joke, right? Somewhere that, um, how do you tell, how can you tell if somebody's vegan or, or on a gluten-free diet? They let you know within the first five minutes of meeting them. Right. Can't argue. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the unique thing about nutrition and also you, nutrition is much more difficult to study than drugs and yet it's much less well-funded. Um, and so there are all these sort of unanswered questions that is that has left a lot of room for interpretation. Um, it's one of the reasons why the the quote unquote diet wars, which is a real thing, are 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 constantly happening and show no sign of abating anytime soon, right? Um the discourse about plant versus animal proteins and and plant exclusive diets compared to uh, um, um, more omnivorous diets. So it that's where a lot of this sort of conflict um arises. Uh, and, um, and there are, there are efforts underway to, to at least minimize, I think the, the, um, you know, the, the, the conflict, what with, uh, disclosures and nutritional papers about the researchers primary, uh, diets of choice. Cause I think that's a disclosure, disclosure worth making, right? If you're like publishing a research paper and you yourself happen to be a vegan, I think that's something, you know, normally in, in research, you have to disclose where your financial funding is from, but now there's this sort of call to get uh, nutrition researchers to reveal their diets, right? Cause that could certainly taint your assessment of, of everybody's data. got a motive everybody's got an angle exactly and it's to validate something else going on e either you know a personal habit or a preference or something in their career something monetarily yeah um so yeah i would say it's the it's the health of any size movement um that that has been a bit problematic uh and but you know it's like diet culture it, i feel like in, in some ways it's a pushback to diet culture and there is a lot of toxicity in diet culture but the anti-diet culture has now become just as toxic and I think that sort of mirrors a lot of what we're seeing elsewhere in society, right? Like at 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 the extremes of any sort of movement, um, you're gonna you're gonna find toxic viewpoints and toxic personalities, right? And um, well, and that that also that pretty much all societal dynamics, instead of kind of looking at them as natural outgrowths of human nature or the society that we've built, and kind of tweaking it around the margins or trying to address some of of where it goes too far, we've decided to just flip them all on their head. So yeah. Instead of okay, you can only be healthy or attractive with a size nineteen waist and looking like Kate Moss in nineteen ninety two. No, all of a sudden we will put people with you know females with a body mass index through the roof on the cover of Vogue, and this is what is beautiful now. And and I'm not so sure that the uh, it seems a little performative. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, like, because I've thought a lot about this. I think that the that that breaking open the sort of beauty the 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 stereotypes of what it means to be beauty because there is there shouldn't really be one 
one female sort of like ideal for what beauty is, right? And you nailed it. Like it's like the it's been for decades like the sort of Kate Moss ideal. Beauty is subjective. I think we have to we have to embrace that. But health is not as subject subjective, right? Health is something that we can ascertain with like. Heart. I guess what I'm saying is that the movement to overturn accepted truths on health grows out of it is motivated by a desire to overturn accepted preferences on beauty. Yeah, fair, fair. And but it shouldn't because that's no, you're conflating not. two things, right? It's that, ridiculous. That shouldn't yeah. be conflated. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Um, so uh, also we're just coming off the mo in terms of health and public health in particular, as we, we discussed a little bit earlier with, you know, public health, once again, the, the arm of the government or you know, public institutions advising the public on health and nutrition were completely wrong for decades on what we should be eating. Okay. We just went through the most significant public health event of modern times, the last hundred years with the pandemic and hopefully of the most significant of, of our lives going forward. Um, and public health during the pandemic really did bump up against the nutrition and wellness community. I can't tell you how I, I gained a lot of followers amongst the world of fitness professionals, nutritionists and whatnot, because I was kind of opposing some of the um, more broad based one size fits all approaches and solutions on COVID because there are a lot of people who said, wait a second, we're taking care of our health. And there really is such a, a, um, a massive gap between the risk for COVID to people who were of poor health, regardless of age, as opposed to people who were even of normal health. But it seems someone made a very interesting point that you know, one of the reasons that the pandemic was so um, destructive in the States is because the United States had underlying health issues to begin with broad based and that, you know, and, and it's like we were soaking, uh, um, a, you know, soaking a fuse in kerosene and then it, COVID came along and, you know, it was the match. Yeah. Um, and it just blew up so much of, it, it just accentuated so many of the underlying health conditions that we were having kind of across society. Um, how did you see that, you know, from the inside of the wellness world, what, what were you seeing during the pandemic in particular about the uh the successes or failures of public health well we live in a, we live in an unwell society today nine and ten adults have at least some component of the metabolic syndrome 66 percent of adults are either overweight or obese half of adults have either di type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes so it's a it's a pretty sad state of affairs with regard to our health and and covid came along and just completely pulled the rug out from beneath our feet we were just not we're not a population that was that was prepared for this degree of pathogenic threat. Um, but you're absolutely right in, in that the wellness community, I mean, these are people who've made health and wellness their, their, their vocation, right? Their life's purpose um, in many ways. I, I, I myself being one of them. And so the, that there were these sort of umbrella mandates um, uh, doled out, oftentimes arbitrar completely arbitrarily to the public that didn't make the distinction. You know, it was, it was such a, there was such a lack of targeting with regard to the yeah. mandates and the messaging. Um, it it was it made no sense, and it also um, it was just anti science. You know, like somebody like like me or or you know people sort of in the millennial demographic, people who are fit, um, very low risk. I mean, this is something that that we've known since day one of the pandemic, right? Um, there was a, that study that came out. Uh, about a year ago showing that, you know, the, most of the people, in the, about 75% of people in the hospital were, were what, overweight or obese or something like I think that. It was closer to 80. Yeah. So, um, 
so yeah, I mean, it was just, it was upsetting and it was, uh, it was a lot to contend with. And I tried not to go too, you know, hard into, into that world. I mean, there are a lot of people in the, in the wellness world, you know, colleagues of mine who, who really kind of went in and, and started putting out really great content, um, on it, but, but very aggressively against the public health measures and restrictions enacted in response to COVID. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, like, you know. and they were and that and man, in trying to in, in trying to put the reality and the science up against the public response, I mean, they subjected themselves to public censure and potential, you know, consequence yeah. socially and professionally by trying to advocate for more tailored solutions and policies. But that at first glance would seem because it didn't, it did not prioritize the interests at the, the, the far edge of the health spectrum where we really had to protect people, but because it did not prioritize the the interests of that far spectrum, as much as some other people felt was the indicator of um, being an empathetic and, and selfless person. I mean, they, you know, they, they risk demonization. Yeah. Some of them got it. Well, the, but the issue is that people who are at risk for COVID are not at the far edge of the of the risk spectrum, right? It's like most people. Most people in this country are, are unwell. So I tried to I tried to see um, I tried to see the the issue from both sides, um, you know, because again, most people are unwell. Age is still the number one that was the number one risk factor. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were there were there just so many missteps. Whether it was the you know the 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 complete ignoring of of natural immunity um the fact that like you know for for years we were wearing cloth masks but oops cloth masks that was acknowledged by the cdc didn't work so thanks for making me have to suffer through that for two yeah, years and i'm gonna be thinking about environmentally because i wasn't really thinking about this early on in the pandemic holy christ the amount of waste we created with the amount of masks that were created and used yeah. over the past 24 months i mean at that scale there's got to be some environmental manifestation of all this like how, how do you even process that that amount of waste it's it's an ocean's full it's crazy yeah well those blue and white medical masks are made using compounds that are known endocrine disruptors i believe no. um pfas substances are used to create those masks they're the substances that make um that essentially make the, the cloth waterproof um, so to speak. That's why they don't, it's so that they don't absorb. It felt like it, it almost a wax glazed yeah, yeah, masks, yeah, right? Yeah, I yeah. imagine that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're with your breath, you're, you're making, you're, you're heating up and moistening those compounds. You're inhaling them. Um, I don't think that we f- fully understand the health consequences that, um, that, that, that's, that having gone through two years of breathing in that stuff is gonna, is going to, um, yeah, no, a, a, a lot of kind of unique circumstances and environmental impacts and inputs that we have not fully been studied that may have at first glance only very incremental or, or nominal impacts on public health, but probably over the course, I mean, much like the the mental health impact of, of you know, shutting most youths and most children off from, you know, once again, we kind of accepted this is how we raise children in America, obviously, in a variety of different of different formats, depending on where you live, if you're in civic, uh, you know, cosmopolitan, suburban or rural. But generally, OK, we know that children are best raised or, or we, we know what society looks like when we keep kids generally in school in this environment during their youth, et cetera, et cetera. We don't know what society looks like when we take kids out of, I mean, a six year old child has lived for a third of their life pretty much, you know, under these conditions. And we, we will have to see what the impact of that is. 
things. Um, you had a very interesting quote here that I think, you know, you probably relates to a lot of what you've discussed so far, but I'd love to hear your take very specifically on this. Fitting an ancient brain into a modern environment may be like fitting a square peg into a round hole. <laughs> so interesting. I'd love to hear you what, what you meant by that in terms of um, um, how conducive or not conducive modern environments are for our brains that are the results of evolution that most of uh, millions of years of evolution that mostly occurred without the types of environmental factors or technologies that we now focus on. Yeah, I mean, the modern world has has mutated and it's left our brains um, as as victims. Uh, you know, in the in the opening chapter of uh, of Genius Foods, I say that the modern world is like the Hunger Games. and Your brain is thrust into battle as an unwitting combatant, weaponless and defenseless. And um, and I think, you know, our brains are suffering in many ways, whether it's exposure to chronic stress, to um, being underslept, to environmental toxicants um, like these endocrine disruptors, which we were talking about, to overindulgence on uh sweets and unhealthy industrially industrially refined oils um i think in many ways we're suffering as a result of this this sort of era of specialization you know if you think about it a hunter gatherer had to be self-sufficient um you had to know how to fight off a predator catch food clean your food cook your food um build a tent light a fire there was i mean you had to really be um, self-sufficient as a, as a hunter-gatherer. And then we transitioned about 10,000 years ago to this new paradigm with regard to human life where uh, suddenly the settler, the, uh, the, 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 the specialist rather, was in vogue. Um, you had somebody to, you know, plant the wheat, somebody to pick it, somebody to mill it, somebody to bake it, somebody to sell it. Um, and I think that that has... Um, I think that's been to the detriment of mental health in many ways, but certainly for people with brains that are more prone to, um, for, uh, for entrepreneurship, people who are entrepreneurs, uh, there tends to be a disproportionate amount of people with ADHD, um, in that cohort. Um, and those are people that might've been the ultimate hunter gatherers, people that, um, that don't like to just focus on one thing for nine hours a day, you know, to, to like, this this notion of sort of the one size fits all nine hour a day desk job um it's something that we've somehow come to accept as normal right as like par for the course of being a human being today but i mean it's 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 really like it does not sync with our evolution it does not sync with our evolution yeah and so i think that's one of the reasons why we see so many people struggling with issues related to mental health today whether it's anxiety or depression i mean rates of of either of these two conditions are are off the charts i mean d depression is on track to become the number one uh cause of disability yeah um around the yeah. world and so i think it's i think it's it's obviously multifactorial but i think our our lifestyles have become are, are definitely like a key suspect in this and so there's been a movement particularly over the past decade and, and a lot they've kind of flooded the zone right we see now where, where people might other than the true fitness junkies up until about 12 15 years ago they might have had a couple home fitness products they had a gym membership they might have tried to eat organic or even tiptoed around veganism. Now there is no shortage of, of informational products and, and 
nutritional supplements and fitness products that uh, are available to people to try to take the next step in combating all these environmental toxins and whatnot, whether it's red light treatment, um, you know, alternative forms of, of health and wellness, wellness tech, um, or the variety, you know, it's God, how 80% of the com commercials, I, I don't know if it's custom to me, but 80% of the commercials you see on YouTube are some sort of health or, or fitness supplement, right? Um, so people are trying to look back to ancient wisdom and some of the, the tactics that our ancestors used used in, in kind of interacting with the physical environment to try to re regain some of that, that wellness that we lost. Um, one, and, and you, you obviously, hey, we talk about it as the psychedelic bro profile, let's call it. But uh, we gravitate towards some of this stuff, particularly with one hot and cold treatment that a lot of people have been gravitating towards. Um, and then some people starting to play around with some psychedelics yeah. um, in terms of, uh, the, you know, with the, the thesis being that there were some. Uh, uh, there were some things that were kind of labeled as narcotics when narcotic use kind of sprung up back up in the middle of the 20th century that might have been unfairly labeled and that in, in its most natural form in a controlled environment or used properly might actually be a health benefit. So um, psilocybin treatment has been one of those. Love to hear your thoughts on kind of the hot and cold therapy and psilocybin as a, as you know as a part of the wellness plan. Yeah, I love this. So you and I are big fans of hot and cold immersion contrast no therapy, as it's called. Um, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of sauna use. So sauna use, um, there's a lot of good research now coming out of the university of Eastern Finland, which I think is notable because, you know, a lot of these sort of healing self-care modalities, um, we, we would see, we here in the United States, we might see a benefit associated with, with their utility. However, epidemiology with regard to health and nutrition practices is usually confounded by what's called healthy user bias, right? So somebody who has access to a sauna here in the United States, might have resources, right? They might be affluent. Um, they might be investing a significant portion of their of their leisure time on self care. So healthy user bias is always sort of like an issue with um with this, the studying of these modalities. But in Finland, Finland is the sauna capital of the world. They have one sauna on average per household. Um, in Finland. the Finns, who knew? Who knew? Yeah. So taking a sauna is like taking a shower. So it's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's much less likely to be associated with this sort of healthy user. Um, effect over there. And what they're showing is that regular sauna use about three to five times a week is associated with robust risk reduction for developing dementia, with developing hypertension, with developing stroke and cardiovascular disease. So it seems to be doing all these really impressive things with regard to one's health. And then mechanistically, I think there are many things at play here. So for one, when you sit in a sauna, you're basically applying a hot compress to your entire body. And what that does is boosts nitric oxide all throughout the body, which helps normalize blood pressure, reduce uh, inflammation, um, increase blood flow. Um, you also are sweating, so you're purging toxins. Various environmental pollutants come out in your sweat um, that aren't otherwise excreted, whether it's through um, you know urine or, or feces. So you're doing lots of really good things by sitting in a, in a, in a sauna. Cold immersion is, is good from a, a different standpoint. It's really good for, I think, bolstering mental acuity, mental health. To me, it's a, it's a very significant state change when I get into a cold, cold plunge or, or cryotherapy or even take a cold shower. Um, it's been shown to boost levels of norepinephrine, which are a, a neurotransmitter involved in focus and attention. Um, and, uh, and also you get this really interesting effect when you do both back to back, um, 
you're essentially with with the heat, you're causing the blood to go up to the surface of your skin, right? Which is why you get red, you get flushed, you start sweating. And then when you go into the uh, cold water, you're causing sort of a, a reverse effect where the blood leaves your extremities and, and goes, you know, to protect your vital organs so that you don't freeze to death. And so by doing that back and forth, you're basically, you're working all of this, like this micromusculature in your vasculature that doesn't otherwise get worked out. Um, we also know that sitting in a sauna acts as a sort of mild aerobic exercise mimetic. So you'll notice you, if you put your two fingers on the, uh, on the radial artery on your, in your wrist, you'll see that your pulse, um, can get to about 120, at least it does for me, which is sort of indicative of a, of an, an aerobic effect that's occurring. Um, so there are all these like really good health promotive, um, effects, uh, due to, um, due to regular sauna use, regular cold water immersion. Um, and that's just sort of like scratching the surface. And you feel incredible. Yeah, you feel incredible. There's like a lot of research now looking at the mental health effects, um, of these two modalities. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're, we're just now, I think, scratching the surface, but, um, but there's been a lot of really good sort of robust research that's been done already. Um, it's definitely something that I recommend people, uh, try to integrate as best they can. Awesome. Awesome. And to that point, um, psilocybin. Yeah. A lot of people looking into this right now. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I was actually, um, there's been a number of, of cool studies looking at psilocybin's ability to foster creative thinking, which I think can be useful for people trying to think around various traumas or even out of the box thinking with regard to problem solving just in their, in their professional or even personal life. Um, there's uh, really good research on using psilocybin as a way to fight depression um, in, a, in an enduring way. Uh, just after uh, one or two doses, this uh, work is being done out of Johns Hopkins and NYU. Um, uh, really interesting stuff as a way to, um, or I think actually MDMA is being used to fight alcoholism. They've been, they've shown that that, um, there's a lot of promise there. Uh, and most recently I stumbled upon a study that found that psilocybin, um, low dose psilocybin was effective, uh, for treating migraine, which is really useful because most people that, that, ha that suffer from migraines, they have to take drugs, right? They have to like take drugs as needed, but these drugs are really, um, can have serious side effects, you know, whether it's very strong NSAID drugs or tryptan drugs. Um, they, I believe the study involved a single, uh, fairly low dose, almost a microdose of psilocybin. And over the course of a month, dramatically, re uh, reduced, um, migraine occurrence as well as, um, uh, severity of the, of the migraines. So yeah, I'm a fan. I think it's a, it's a really cool, um, world that we're in now. I'm like super grateful that they're doing this research. A lot of it's being done, as I mentioned, Hopkins, NYU, Imperial College in London um, is sort of an epicenter for this work. Yeah. It's ironic, but maybe fitting that during an era of such generalized low, like low public health and so much, you know, widespread disease and infirmary simultaneously, we're attaining new heights in, in our access to knowledge and ways to live better. Um, and maybe, you know, I've always thought it's kind of cause and effect. It's the environment became so toxic. We had to start paying attention to it, that the reason that you're seeing another fitness studio on every corner and that you're seeing Equinox is all over the place and a gym membership is now a staple item as opposed to a luxury item. Um, and, and all these products, it's because we got so uh, out of shape is that, you know, well, you, you go watch any, go watch any American film before maybe, you know, the late nineties and look at the phenotypes, look at the body types. It is shocking 
it's it's like another species. Um, but interesting to see us kind of elevate our knowledge profile um, in response. Um, one last thing, and I'll let you go. I mean, you also and another interesting dynamic in, in look, you know, kind of analyzing what what new what new in the economy, what new commercially occurs now that people can become kind of their, their own celebrities or, or well-known broadcasters within a specific niche based on social media is that, you know, being someone who's notable on these topics and has a following brands, the, the burgeoning, you know, CPG and wellness and fitness tech brands want to speak to you earlier. And so you, you know, you at this point are, are somewhat of a venture capitalist in the space and investing in, in wellness and tech uh, and wellness tech and nutrition and whatnot. Um, you know, how I'd love a macro view of that, of how this new composition of part influencer, part venture capitalist, because it makes all the sense in the world. It's why you see so many more. It's it's not that, you know, athletes and celebrities and entertainers always had money. Okay. They weren't always investing in early stage companies, but it just makes a lot more sense in this era, which is why you see so many releases of early, you know, announcements of early stage funding rounds these days, whether it's in, in the wellness space or otherwise with influencers or celebrities um, listed on the cap table. And I, I love kind of your view of how this new phenomenon of the influencer and investor has percolated. Yeah. I mean, I love to invest in companies where I think they're doing good for the world and they're good for the food. They're doing good for the food environment. For example, I invested in a company recently called Serenity Kids, which makes the best, healthiest uh, toddler and children formula that that I've ever seen. I mean, if you if you look at the if you go to even Whole Foods, right, and you look at the, the offerings for children's food, it's like you're feeding your ch- kids Jamba juice, you know, yep. which yep. is just like very fruit juice heavy. Um, uh, lots of unhealthy oils and the like. So I found this company. They're the only company of its kind making. Um, and obviously, my disclosure is that I'm an investor. But other than that, I have no say day to day in the in the operation of the company. But they make, mm-hmm. they take a meat centric approach, high in healthy fats, no fruit sugar. Um, they use all you know complex carbohydrates from tubers and stuff like that. Uh, if they use beef, it's going to be grass finished beef. If they use salmon, it's going to be wild salmon. It's called Serenity Kids, as I mentioned. And, um, yeah, I, I love, you know, it's the kind of, I love investing in, in, in the, in products that I personally would eat or would recommend to my loved ones. And of course I also have the ability at this point, thankfully to influence the success of these companies, right? Cause I can tell my audience about them. Um, so I think it's a really great, uh, sort of, you know, intersection and, um, and yeah, this, the CPG space especially these better for you CBG products. I think it's just, it's a sector that's exploding. I mean, all you need to do is, is, is check out Expo West, right? Natural products, Mm -hmm. Expo West for a day. And it's just, you'll see all the products, all the excitement. Um, There's been a number of really big exits lately in the space, whether it's like Primal Kitchen or Hue Kitchen, which, you know, makes those, those really great chocolate bars. No doubt. Um, And so there's, there's real money to be made. This is no longer just like some Erewhon niche, thing that's like catering to just a, a few um interested parties you know this is like it's it's gone mainstream mm-hmm. um and so it's it's super exciting and it's exciting it's exciting it's exciting obviously from a commercial standpoint but it's exciting also because people as you mentioned are are now more invested than ever in their health and their well-being and their wellness there's all these new avenues to explore um fitness right so if you don't like going to a gym or if you don't like uh, you know, Pilates, well, we've got this new, you know, like platform where you can, you know, hopefully find what works for you. There's like all these different options now. It's like, it's become like a Vegas buffet. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's only, I think it's great. Is it working? I don't know. People are still sick, but at least, uh, at least 
you know, they're at least we're trending in the right direction. Yeah. Well, at least we're, we're at least we see what's possible now. We yeah. see that there are some uh, some solutions out there. They have only filtered to a select number, uh, uh, you know, they've filtered selectively. Hopefully they can filter more widespread and particularly now after the pandemic, when I think a lot of people are willing to, they're, they're focused more on their health. They're focused more on using the tools available to them. So we'll have to see how that translates. Hopefully the, the, the pandemic was a wake up call. And now that we're out of the fog of the, 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 boots on the ground, the actual situation here, you know, people can look at it with a, a bit of a clear view. Um, but in terms of commercial products out there that can help your health and fitness and help you lead a, a healthier and better life, the Genius Kitchen available, of course, on Amazon. Um, all the, uh, obviously you got to hear Max, you can, it, not difficult to uh, identify him as a wealth of knowledge. So if you want access to this knowledge in more consumable form to inform your choices day to day, the Genius Kitchen, Max, anything else about this book or where we can find it? I'm just super excited though. I mean, the recipes are all incredible i've got like the best of the best in there also it's like uh it's a kitchen guide so whether you're a total novice in the kitchen or you're a seasoned pro i mean one of the things that i knew going into this book is that dudes don't typically buy cookbooks right like when was the last mm -hmm. time you bought a cookbook matt Blinsky? i think i bought the joy of cooking just for shits and giggles as a decorative item maybe like seven years ago so that's <laughs> really? about it yeah yeah so i mean i went into it like i, I wrote a, a book that i th i thought would appeal to um all the genders and uh and and therefore provide foods that were and and photos and and sort of a look for the book that was not just like super um you know like frivolous uh and 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 um florid but uh something that would appeal to you know to anybody really looking to improve their cooking and cooking i think is like you know we talked about how we are we now live in the era of the specialist right and i think as i mentioned we've suffered as a result we outsource mm -hmm. our culinary knowledge right we outsource our financial literacy we outsource our health literacy we outsource our nutrition liter literacy the fact that we all now have like smartphones and and a trader joe's and restaurants you know everywhere we've solved the issue of food scarcity right yeah but our ability to to fend for ourselves to cook delicious meals for ourselves has been lost and cooking eating together it's the way that we communicate it's the way that we bond the way that we express love it's super important so i hope to bring it back um with the genius kitchen by paying an op by paying homage to uh the joy of cooking and the joy of eating together and, and being able to create delicious healthy nourishing meals um for ourselves and those that we care about very noble goals my friend max it was a pleasure and a long time coming congrats on the new book it's fantastic can't wait to put it to use myself uh thank you so much for joining us ladies and gentlemen this is the prevailing narrative i am matt belinsky once again you can listen and subscribe to the prevailing narrative on the iHeartRadio app apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now make sure to follow me on my socials at matt belinsky m-a-t-t-b-i-l-i-n-s-k-y the prevailing narrative is a cavalry audio production in association with iHeartRadio, produced by brandon morgan executive produced by dana brunetti and keegan rosenberger for cavalry audio i'm matt belinsky traffic jams tailgating pile-ups Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.